Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, David Moore and Evan Grant. So over the uh, uh, of the weekend, or, or now, Evan, you have uh, been reporting on the uh, Texas Rangers, who got back to looking like the Texas Rangers we had gotten used to uh, earlier this season. They had for a while there drifted from uh, – Everything that had established as who they are, a team that that uh, did well with two strikes, that, that didn't chase, uh, made pitchers throw strikes, uh, the pitchers threw strikes, uh, all the all that deserted them last week, and then they kind of turned that back around over the weekend against Toronto, an unbelievable comeback against the Blue Jays, uh, down six to nothing, and came back and won that game, uh, just phenomenal comeback, their biggest comeback of the season. Uh, and then they got off to a good start in Chicago, where the White Sox have a whole bunch of pitchers. Um, and Evan, I'm wondering, uh, before we get to what you wrote about for today's Dallas Morning News, uh, about the, the maybe a temporary shift in the lineup, moving Josh Young from fifth to third, what about all those pitchers the White Sox have? Yeah, they, they, I mean, Kevin, they've got a lot of pitchers. They've, they've got some bullpen options and – in Kendall Graveman and Joe Kelly and Garrett Crochet, and, and they've got some rotation options in um, uh, potentially Lance Lynn uh, and maybe even Dylan Cease, who's pitching against the Rangers on Wednesday. But I think a lot of it depends on on where the White Sox are, are actually go. Uh, you would look at their record and say, this team is dead in the water, right? They're 12 games under five hundred. Um, but Jerry Reinsdorf has always been a little bit unpredictable when it comes to parting with his players and the American league central is a division in which 12 games under 500 has you five games off the lead. So I think there's still some decisions to be made there, but from my perspective and really from the first month of the season, when it appeared the Rangers had bullpen issues, the White Sox were at the top of my list to say, okay, here's here's somebody whose bones you could pick out a little bit. Um, they've got some talented pitchers. They've been a a vastly underachieving team. Uh, you know, Crochet holds the most interest for me because he's the most controllable, uh, but he's had some command issues this year, and he was hurt last year. Uh, Joe Kelly's throwing 100 miles an hour this year um, and is playoff tested. Graveman has a lot of experience and can pitch multiple innings. So there's there's a little bit of something for everybody there. The other thing for the Rangers, and I'm certainly not saying they're out of the woods, but it does appear, and in, in, in talking with Bruce Bochy over the last week, I do get a feeling from him that he does feel like his bullpen has settled into some, into some roles, particularly some late inning roles. I don't know how long you can count on Josh Spores just because of the track record. But he has absolutely dealt now for for a month. And, and Grant Anderson, you know, who came up in the middle of May, has been has been a godsend for the bullpen. So uh, I think they feel a little bit more settled. They don't feel. Let, let's put it this way: I don't think they feel quite so panicked about the bullpen. I definitely think it's still something they need to address. But it has bought them maybe a little bit more time to 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 flush out the full market, right, Kevin? We, you and I, talk a lot about Alexis Diaz and and David Bednar, and right now those guys probably aren't available because their teams are in the National League Central race. 
Yeah, that, that's the issue. <clears throat> and, I, and I do think that, you know, as you said, some of these guys are pitching better. Jose Leclerc is pitching better uh, again. Uh, Jonathan Nan has been sent down. Uh, we'll see whether he can get anything back together. Uh, Spores has, has been terrific. I, I think Spores, to me, is the most impressive arm in the bullpen right now. You know, he's got good stuff. He throws hard. Uh, you know, his, his, his makeup, you know, I've never even had a conversation with it. But his makeup seems to be very good on the mound. He, he looks a little unflappable to me. I, I, I do feel like he is the kind of guy – I'm not going to say he's ready to be a closer. I don't think that he is. Not this year. Uh, maybe that's in his future. Um, but I, I just feel like, you know, uh, you know, Brock Burke's pitching better again. You know, so yes, things are are being repaired slowly here. But uh, you know, to me, you you just don't take a chance on that. Uh, to me, you you still reinforce. You, I, I I think they still need another starter. I still think they need another bullpen piece, probably a closer. So to me, those are the things that you you really have to do because you hate to get into September and October, obviously, and go. Well, man, we're we're short here. We we had a little uptick in performance, and then we we decided that was going to be good enough, and that's a disaster. A hundred percent. And from my perspective, the way the the leverage pieces are working out now. I'm going to tick off four guys real quickly, and that's, you know, the majority of the bullpen nowadays. But if you were in a situation where you had Josh Spores to use the way you've used him, which is quite often in, in for more than three outs, um, and you have Grant Anderson to do the same, which you is, is similar to the way you've used him from the right-hand side. So you got those two from the right-hand side. If you can then slide Will Smith from the ninth inning to the eighth inning, from the left-hand side, and you've got Burke on that on that end as well. Now, all of a sudden, every night, you've got a fresh lefty and a fresh righty uh, for the late-inning high-leverage situations if you go out and get a closer to back all that up. So, yeah. and here's the name. You know, the one name that I, I haven't heard a lot about this year, Kevin, um, that's interesting to me is – We've talked on the starter market about whether the Indians would give up Shane Bieber or the Indians. That, there I go again. Guardians. Whether the Guardians would give up Shane Bieber or not. My question is, if they're not going to be in the playoff hunt, would they consider giving the Rangers back Emmanuel Classe? And if you could get Classe to put at the back of that at the back of that bullpen, now you're talking about something entirely, entirely different. And uh, that's a game changer right there because he's both battle he's battle tested as a closer and he's got world class stuff. Well, there's no question about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you can do that, that would be that would be really interesting because to me, that's what this team lacks, and and frankly, what most teams lack is uh, just a stopper at the back of the bullpen. That that's just become a, a vanished commodity here. And we've we've talked about that. Is that because of the pitch clock? What's happened to change? The, uh, uh, the the bullpen, I, I think bullpens have been more affected by the pitch clock than any other facet of, of the game. I think bullpens have been more impacted by the, but I, I, I think bullpens have been more impacted by the change in three batter rule going back two years than anything else. And I think that, you know, all of those changes, then you add in, the pitch clock and, and every little thing that you ramp up, it's almost like it, it it's exponentially uh, impacting the previous item. I, I know, I don't think I, Bruce Bochy was a master of the one batter 
lefty, you know, it, 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 when he was in San Francisco. And I do think that in some regards, that's the one thing he struggled with since he came back is not having that guy that he could just go to for one batter and trying to measure out, do I want to use a right-hander here, even though I'm going to face a lefty? How do I want to do this? Um, and, and so I think that that is the biggest impact on the bullpens. But then when you factor in the pitch clock, the limited number of pickoff throws that a guy can throw, that a guy can can use to hold runners, I think all of those things just continue to ramp up the pressure on the back end of the bullpen. No question about it. All right, let's talk a little bit about the lineup shift that, that the Rangers had in uh, on Monday night's win, uh, and that meant Josh Young going from fifth to third. A couple of weeks ago when I was out there, I, I talked to uh, uh, Young about uh, you know, what was going on with the team. And, and uh, one of the things he, he we talked about was the fact that he liked the idea that every night when I come here, this is where I'm going to be, and which was fifth. You know, and everybody in the lineup likes that. And then we know that hitters like to know where they're going to be. We've always talked about Ron Washington setting the, the lineup on cruise control in April and then going through the rest of the season with it. Uh, and I think with a veteran lineup, that's a really good thing to do. You see a lot less of that kind of thing now uh, because of matchups and, and differences and and, and the moving around. And you got to justify all those you know, those numbers geeks you got and and what they're saying that you have to do. Um, but I will say this: uh, two things about Josh Young. Well, first of all, like as you wrote in uh, for today's Dallas Morning News. You know, that balances the lineup. You go from Seager, the left-hander, to uh, Josh Young, the right-hander, instead of uh, Nate Lowe, uh, which is good. Uh, And and look, Nate Lowe's been very good in that role. He was a silver slugger last year. Uh, He's not hitting at quite the same level this year. He's still a very uh, good hitter, good at going the opposite way. I I like his approach. But historically, the number three hitter has been the best hitter in your lineup. Uh, that's changed a little bit now because everybody's trying to, you know, to put their, their best hitters at the top. That's why Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager are hitting one, two, because they get more at bats that way. And then that that makes perfect sense to do that. But there's still something about hitting third, uh, in a lineup. And I wrote this spring that Josh Young was going to be an all-star within two years. And I was wrong about that. He he may be an all-star this year. Uh, he's really going fast. Yeah, he has. Uh, he's been the the most productive Rangers first round draft pick in well over a decade. Uh, he's been he's been everything that the club expected him to be. And and you know to your point, Kevin, right? He said last night when he saw his name in the lineup in the number three spot, he thought that was cool. And then he expanded on it a little bit, saying, you know, everybody in this lineup pretty much hit number three on every team they've been in. So when you get to the big leagues and you actually hit number three. You, you, you do feel like it's a little bit more special. Um, I, I think that it this serves a number of purposes. And I also think that while you could make a case that, hey, maybe you do want to stack the lefties when you face a right-hander like tonight and Wednesday um, at the top of the order, I think for this exact reason that you just mentioned, the stability and and just not moving guys around very much, I think it's likely that the Rangers will continue to hit Young in the number three spot against right-handed pitchers and that Lowe will stay in the number five spot. I don't think the players have an issue with a change to the lineup here and there. I just don't think they want to change lineup positions every day. So um, I I think this is something the Rangers will look at um, for the longer term. And, 
it certainly paid dividends last night for for Josh. And look, Nate Nate reached base three times. He he had a single that started a rally uh, in the fourth inning, and he walked twice. And so um, the middle of the order was very productive last night. It, it is. It's something Bochy has been been thinking about. I think it also, you know, last night was a good night to, to pull this out because the White Sox were going with a left-hander and were going with a left-handed opener, essentially a bullpen game. And the Rangers have faced a couple bullpen games in the last few days. And to Bochy's point, you know, if you've got a lefty, if you go righty, uh, righty, lefty, righty in the first three, it makes an opposing team think a little bit more about how they want to deploy their opener. Because they they aren't going to be able to say, all right, we're we need to get a lefty out there to face two lefties in the first inning. Um, so th- there's a number of reasons why it works. Um, and coming off of their first offensive struggle of the season after a ten day period where I think they did press a little bit with runners in scoring position, and I talked with Donnie Ecker a little bit about that, and and he had dug into some numbers, and they talked about this Sunday before the game uh, that this team had started to expand a little bit. Uh, earlier in counts with runners in scoring position. And the message the message to the hitters, again, was we don't change anything we do. The pitcher has to change in, in, in those situations. I think that's what they got back to against Toronto, and I think you saw it carry over to last night when the first, you know, when they, they had a two-out rally in the first inning, a two-out rally in the fourth inning. Those kinds of things are, are what this team has been come to, to be known for offensively. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, and of course, we cited those numbers. Uh, their hitting and scoring uh, position is, is outrageous uh, over the course of the season. There's, there's no way a team could sustain that type of thing. But what I saw less of last week when they were faltering and they lost, what, seven of nine games was that uh, they just went back to what they'd been in previous seasons. You know, guys, guys just swinging at bad pitches, uh, not being competitive. You know, I don't have a problem with a guy – you know, last night, you know, Josh Young had just a, a screamer to the right side. First baseman makes a dive and stop, you know, and, and they get the out. Well, guy put the ball in play and put the ball in play hard. That's all you can ask a guy to do. It, it's the other stuff. When you're swinging at a pitch, it's up under your chin, uh, you know, with two strikes. Uh, that's, the, that's the kind of stuff they were doing. And, uh, and then, you know, what's happening now and is what is the success of this lineup is not only is it – it was obviously top-heavy the last couple of years. Well, now you're getting production throughout the lineup. Uh, Leone Tavares continues to hit. Zeke Duran continues to hit. Uh, uh, Jonah Hine continues to hit. This is a, a remarkable uh, story of this lineup and how, how well it's going. I have a hard time seeing, you know, so they had that, that lull. They made you have some doubts about them last week, and then they pulled themselves out of it again. I guess a very good Toronto team. Uh, and, and now they're, they, they've done the same thing in Chicago so far. So, uh, I, I really have a good feeling about this lineup to me, uh, and about what this team can do and it's, uh, and and how far it can possibly go to me. It's just all a question of, do they shore up their pitching enough to make this a really good team, an excellent team and a team that can really go someplace. And real quick on that, too, isn't that kind of like, you know, Evan, before you answer about the, the pitching, it's like a lot of that's the emotional scar tissue, right? When you're talking about, oh, this team lost a seven of nine, they're, you know, they're regressing back to the norm. They were ahead of the curve. You knew you couldn't, you knew they couldn't keep this up. Other teams are going to catch up now. And, and 
but but you're imprinting how bad they've been in previous years saying, well, this is going to repeat itself, even though we've seen time and time again with this lineup is much different than what you had before. But now with with all this consternation and like people rolling their eyes going, okay, well, let's look up here soon and see what's happened. You know, the Astros will come back here. You go through this stretch and they've actually gained on their, they've actually added to their lead in the division. And now it's the Angels who have moved past, uh, you know, using, but, but they still gained ground in this stretch where uh, just statistically, you just, you knew you couldn't keep up that level for an entire season. Every team goes through these periods and, and it's about minimizing them. And, and to me, that's what, I mean, Boshi just, I mean, it, he doesn't let things go on. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, there are critical times. This could have gone on a, a little bit longer. Uh, but but he makes a few tweaks here and there, just his overall approach. I mean, I, I think you see what a veteran proven manager can do in these situations. And I, I think it came through in these last, you know, 10 to, to 15 days. He's got an innate sense of timing. And again, uh, there is, I, I don't know if cadence is the right word or um, delivery is the right word, but he has this ability to, you know, we talk in baseball season so long, don't get too high, don't get too low. But I think you do want to show guys that you do have some range of emotions. You just don't want to be manic and then depressive. And I think he's got the ability to keep guys loose, to touch everybody in some way, um, you know, metaphysically. Uh, Jake Peavy was on the MLB Network last week, and, and Jake was part of the 2014 Giants team, and he, he started to tell this story about before Game 7 of the 2014 World Series where Bochi called the team in, and um, he got everybody real close together, and he talked. He basically mentioned each player by name and mentioned each contribution they had made going off no notes, no nothing, said that each – this is why you're here. This, 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 each player by name. And PV was was talking about it, and you could tell that he had goosebumps retelling that story. And I asked Bochi about it this weekend, and, yeah, there were no notes. There was – he just – he has a great file up here of whether it's statistical knowledge that he needs to tap into, strategic knowledge, or I think most importantly – the ability to connect with his players and tell them this is what you mean to this team. Uh, and, and so he's he's got that timing, and I think he's displayed that here. I also just want to say two, two words about regression. You know, we I, regressions become such a bad word in baseball because it means, okay, well, they're bad now. They're going to be they're, – they're, they're going to regress to the norm. This team can regress and still be on a historic pace, right? Um, that they had one poor week at the plate, uh, didn't it? Didn't bring them back to the norm. They were still leading the American, still leading baseball in OPS with runners in scoring position. So um, they are a good team. They're not going to regress to the norm. They may be regress off a historic pace some, but they're not going to regress to the mean. They're not going to regress to the norm. It is a a good team, and they they did make really good adjustments against Toronto. To to Kevin's point. I think they had seen, and I think Donnie Ecker and his staff of, of on the hitting side did a really good job of like drilling down on, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's where we're expanding. 
and there's a bunch of percentages in there and counts and all that. And you can't just lay that those numbers out for the players and expect them to digest that. I think it comes down to an individual approach. And there are there are analysts, there's assistant hitting coaches, there's Tim Hires. Each of those guys took a couple guys, took them aside, said, "Okay, let's do this. Let's let's get back to what we're doing." And what you saw was the team go five for twelve against Toronto in that with runners in scoring position on Sunday and carry it over last night to a situation where a guy who had been struggling with runners in scoring position, Jonah Heim, had a big two-out hit with the bases loaded um, in a key in a one-run game last night. So I, I, I think this is just a – it's a well-adjusted offense. And, yeah, there's going to be some some streaks where they're, they're not as effective, but it's a good and deep offense, and it's made a good and deep offense by what Kevin mentioned earlier. Yes, it's it, – there's – there's some all-stars in the top half of that lineup, but the bottom half of the lineup has really improved. There's there's no way to really quantify just how much Leody Tavares has come into his own. He never showed this. While the Rangers had hopes that he was this kind of player and talked that he was this kind of player, he never showed it statistically at any level until this year. Yeah, it's been remarkable to see that. And the other side of that, too, Evan, is that I felt bad about riding going into that series with the Angels that they were basically Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and, a, and mostly a bunch of guys. Uh, and I still believe that, and yet those bunch of guys uh, beat the Rangers in that series. Uh, and then, of course, with Otani playing like he's the next Babe Ruth. Otani, yeah, Otani played like a bunch of Babe Ruth. That's the thing. Yeah, it's just unbelievable what he did for that team. And that's it. But I, 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 I'm going to stick by that. I'm going to say that I, I do feel like the Angels don't have enough. They don't have enough in that lineup. Uh, the, uh, the Astros are really struggling now. I think the weight of, of the loss of all of those players, not only this year, but plucking stars from that lineup over the last few years, and now with the, the disappearance of uh, Jordan Alvarez, uh, is really affecting that team and the mindset of it. It's just, they're just not performing as well. I don't see the Astros making a big uh, run here in the second half. Um, they're, they, they, they're just skidding now. So I, I do think that it's on the Astros, but I think the Astros, it's on the Rangers to raise their expectation level and to, th- and to think it's not good enough to win the West. Uh, we got to do add enough. We've got to do what John Daniels did when he went out and got Cliff Lee. I'm not saying you have to go out and get a, an ace, but you have to go out and make a big move at the deadline. You have to make a statement. That's what teams do at this point. That's what a general manager does. I know that's in uh, Chris Young's DNA. He, his belief is you put a foot on somebody's neck. You know, this it's not good enough to think that we're good enough. We're going to show everybody we're going to, we're going to, now we're going to add this. So take that. Um, I, I really do uh, think that the Rangers have, have put themselves in that position. I'll be, I'll be really interested to see what happens now. I like your Emmanuel Clause uh, uh, trade idea, Evan. If, uh, if, uh, if the Guardians – I'm off Alexis Diaz now. If the Guardians are willing to cave, uh, that's my guy. That's, that's the guy you have to add. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that the next time I see Chris Young, I bring that up. Yeah, I, I mean, let's just be clear. I mean, that's not, that's not something that's, that's necessarily out there, but if you're the Rangers – um, and you're you're identifying what's what's a difference maker in the bullpen. If the Guardians are going to give up the give up contention in this in, in this season, that would be the guy I'd be targeting as as the biggest potential difference maker. Yeah, no question about that. 
All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Rangers talk on this podcast. Uh, we're going to move over now and talk about the Mavericks. Got a, got a draft this week uh, on Thursday. David, the, uh, the Mavericks had the 10th pick, or at least they do at the moment. There's been a lot of speculation in these mock drafts that you see uh, there are, are a, the one thing that this draft seems to have a lot of is 3 and D wings. And, boy, if there's one thing the Mavericks need, it's a really good 3 and D wing. Uh, they, they don't have much size. They don't have much defense. Uh, now, and if they want to keep Kyrie Irving, which is their priority this offseason, and I have to say that's probably should be their priority this offseason, uh, they're going to have to add some real defense around those guys. I think they think they can do that. David, do you think that they will hold on to that pick and take a good young player? I mean, other teams do that. Uh, other teams build through the draft. The The Mavericks have gotten actually a couple of pretty good players over the last couple of drafts. Josh Green has turned to be, out to be a pretty serviceable player after some uh, questions about that, certainly his first couple of years, and then, working under Rick Carlisle. Jaden Hardy was terrific last year. Looks like he might be a, a real fine. They got him in the second round. Uh, so what do you think they're going to do here, David? Well, first, I think we need to acknowledge how hard they worked at not playing well in order to get this pick, <laughs> like, which yeah. did cost them more than half a million dollars. And um, It's the best know, thing they did all year. Playing their way out of the play-in tournament to get the 10th pick. And, you know, you're exactly right. They, look, every sport is really constructed financially now where if you don't have a good draft pipeline, all you're doing is you're overpaying on the other end to bring in veterans uh, and, and not getting them. And it's much tougher to control costs and you hurt your depth going forward, right? Because you're overpaying for particular positions because you never drafted anyone that can move into those roles. And what's the other side of that? You lose continuity because you're always shuffling the chairs. You know, you're always changing out positions. The, the Mavericks, have that has been their approach for quite a while. And I, I know initially a lot of people were saying, oh, well, 10, this is where, you know, and they don't have many picks coming up. You got to take this. You got to get some young, infuse this roster with some young talent. And I agree with all of that. But when you look at the lack of number one picks they have going forward, when you look at how this team has been constructed for decades, um, when you look at coming off a massively disappointing season and feeling you have to make up for lost time uh, with Luca and the clock ticking and, and, and his long-term viability here and in maximizing what he brings. I think once again, they will talk themselves into, oh, well, no, as far as an immediate return on investment, uh, we're going to get more by leveraging the number 10 pick with something to bring in a couple of veterans. And, and I think they'll be able to justify it because there's a lot of work that needs to be done on this team. It's not a deep team. It, it's not, and look, they're, they're in a position too. It's it's unsettled at the top. I mean, I how can they go forward without Kyrie Irving? Uh, that's really something they have to do. Sign them, and then if it doesn't work out down the road, spin out of it. But at least you have uh, you're going to spin out down, right? You're not going to replace him at the level he is if it doesn't work out long term. But but they're in a position where I don't see how they can afford to go forward without him. But 
if you until he actually signs, that impacts this type of player you're looking for and how this team is constructed. So there is so much uncertainty at the top, um, but but that's how this team has kind of constructed teams in the offseason for years. And um, but but yeah, a lot of three and D players in that. If they kept it. Um, you would think that, but, but I would also throw out another name too. And his, and he's starting to, to gain some traction here. That's a uh, Duke's Derek Lively, uh, yeah. the freshman center seven one. Um, I, I would also argue with Luca, the way this team's constructed, uh, an interior rim defender who can improve your rebounding and, um, you know, kind of dive toward the basket and capitalize on, on the pick and roll when teams switch that pick and roll, it w- would help this team dramatically. So I, I think that's another name. But yeah, the others, you know, you, you talk about in that range, you know, Grady Dick, the Kansas, uh, you know, shooting, you know, small forward, uh, Taylor Hendricks, uh, you know, Anthony Black, a point, uh, the point guard in that group out of, you know, Arkansas, uh, Jarris Walker, uh, the Houston forward, you know, so it's uh, there. There are a lot of three and D guys out there, uh, but you have to be committed to playing them, and you have to see them in a role immediately going forward. And and you know, it's t- difficult to get a read on this organization what they exactly think of this. Of this yeah, I, I'm I'm intrigued by by, by Grady Dick. You know, it's he's an interesting uh, question to me. That people think he might be the best shooter in this draft. Uh, yeah. He's six eight. He is considered an adequate defender, not a not a great defender, but an adequate. If you could get a guy who's the best shooter, pretty much the best shooter in any draft is always a great player, right? Yes. I mean that that is that guy almost always ends up being the rookie of the year. Uh, and if you can get that, because in the NBA, as much as you want defense, and and of course you have to have it, you know the object is to put the ball in the in the basket. And this guy can do that, and he can defend a little bit. I have a hard time looking down the road and seeing Grady Dick being a guy who's averaging 21, 22 points a game for somebody. And I'm talking down the road, not this year, but down the road. And then you got a a, a nice 3 and D wing, but, you know, he's, he's just a guy that, you know, is kind of a plug and play. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's, and the that's issue is when, you know, it, with Luca and Kyrie Irving, your two best players, neither who are defensive stalwarts, right. then you need to balance out your lack of defense in the other three spots on the court. But say you take that approach and then you don't re-sign Kyrie Irving, and now suddenly you look at a team that's offensively challenged and probably defensively challenged yeah. as well. So, yeah. there, I mean, this is a – I think this – this phrase is used too much, but this is really a crossroads offseason for the Mavericks. And and they they set it in motion by making that trade last year to get Kyrie. Um, it, you know, I think they're in a very precarious position no matter how they proceed. But they've got to, you know, it's two distinct, very distinct and different paths to proceed with Kyrie or without and they have to resolve all that before technically his name is on the the dotted line. And I think that just makes it even more of a high wire act for him. Well, it does. You know, what's complicated all this is just frankly their relationship with Luca. They it's a good relationship. Luca likes it here, they like him. All of that's very uh, well documented. But you can't count on that. And they made this move thinking that we've got to try to win now because we don't want to 
tick off Luca, and we want him to want to stay here. And so because of that, they they went down that path with Kyrie Irving. Uh, you know, if they had not made that deal, they they would they could be sitting at this point uh, in the with a with the tenth pick and taking whoever they wanted, right? I mean, because you would still sure. have Dorian Finney Smith, and so yes. you would you would still have uh, you know Spencer Dinwiddie. You know, you, you'd have plenty of depth. Then then you go out and maybe get that Derek Lively and bring him in to to play in a kind of a a, a little bit of spot role because Christian Woods not coming back. Yeah, you build uh, completely differently. And look, let's look at this real quick. Let's extrapolate this out. Say they move on from Kyrie Irving. You made a deal for Przingis and moved on. You let Jalen Brunson walk and moved on. You made a deal for Kyrie Irving and then moved on. So now suddenly, a, a good young player that that got you to the Western Conference Finals last year is working with this fourth different team in a very short period of time. And, and that can't be reassuring to the long-term prospects of, hey, what am I going to be able to do if I stay here? So there, there are a lot of dynamics in play here. And, um, you know, I, I think the – I would argue that the, the Mavericks management has been too reactive for too long. But once you put yourself in that mode, it's difficult to break out of, right? You tend yeah. to be even more real. I mean, you know, once you start making questionable decisions and they don't work, it's very hard to say, okay, now let's take a different approach and we're going to take three years here to write this ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you start accelerating it, now you're further down the road, you're even less likely to do it. So it just compounds the, the poor decision-making a lot of times, I think. Well, not only with that, what you got uh, with the, the Mavericks, or the, do we need to stop here, Christian, since Evan dropped off? I, uh, okay, all right. I'll just, I'll just pick up here. Three, two, one. Uh, I want to ask you this, David, because, you know, first of all, to your point, uh, it's not Mark Cuban's nature to break everything down. You know, he, he just he could do that for a week. But he, he can't do that for two or three years. That's just not in his nature to do that. Yeah. So anyway. Well, he would argue there is continuity because, well, Luca's here, right? Look how long Dirk was here. Look, and I mean, yeah, I get it. But what are you doing around him? And, and sometimes it, yeah. But but sometimes he doesn't actively keep together what's in place. You know, either it's uh, uh, the the team last team that won the championship. There was a sense of. Uh, well, that's lightning in a bottle. We can't duplicate that. So let's let these guys go because we'll get better people in here down the road and, you know, this is all going to work out. Well, guess what? It didn't work out. And, and that kind of set you set yourself on a path where, okay, let, let's swing for the fences here. Give it a year and a half. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, let's go on. But then you actually have someone in-house you develop in Jalen Brunson and let him walk. So they've they've – They've messed it up on both sides, in my mind, to, to this point. Now, when you have a player as, as transcendent as Luca, he gives you the ability to make mistakes and still pull out of it. But I would still argue you have to have a disciplined, comprehensive approach on what your approach is. And I, I just don't get the sense that the Mavericks have exhibited that in, in recent years. I really don't. No, I, and I don't know that they've. I don't know if they ever have. You you can look at Mark's front office in that he never he was so slow to define a general manager, right? I mean, Donnie yeah. Nelson had several titles over the years. He was kind of the de facto GM, but everybody knew that Mark was really running the show anyway. So Mark's really the GM, you know. 
so yeah, there was, there was chaos in the front office and they supposedly Nico Harrison has straightened all that out and that's all great. I just don't know if Nico Harrison's really a general manager. And I'm, I'm going to ask you about this, you know, uh, Bob Myers, who kind of the architect of, of the, uh, uh, Golden State, yeah, Warriors, Golden State. Yeah. Uh, dynasty retired, burned out, uh, ready to do something a little different. Now, you know, you know, maybe he's, Maybe that's it with him. As we discussed last week, they still haven't announced if Dennis Lindsay is really on board or not. I, I you know, who, who's of course with Utah and the former Baylor uh, player. Uh, so I, and maybe if he does come on board, maybe that gives uh, you know Nico somebody he can lean on a little bit. Uh, but I really feel like this organization needs a really strong voice, uh, somebody a voice other than Marks. Uh, I'm not saying that Mark is necessarily a bad uh, owner. Uh, I think he's done a lot of good things for that franchise, obviously, won its only championship under him. Uh, but he needs somebody that's going to say to him, no, Mark, we have to do this. And I don't know if they've had that. I don't I don't think Donnie did that. I don't, I don't know that Nico no. does that. Uh, and so there has to be somebody who does that, especially as Mark has gotten older and it seems like his interest has drifted a little bit. He's got a lot of other things going on. Uh, and so uh, the franchise needs somebody there all the time. It's a little bit like when when uh, Nolan Ryan was the president of the Rangers. And, and of course, they had a lot of success. And that was all great. But what people didn't realize is that, is that Nolan was kind of a part-time president. You know, yeah. He had a lot of other interests and things that he was doing. He was not spending a lot of time around that franchise. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why... That's what led to the the dismissal. Not a, not so much personalities. It's just that hey, we got to have a full time president. So uh, yeah, I, I just find it interesting. All of the intense and unrelenting criticism of Jerry Jones and how he runs the franchise through the years. And, and I would I would also say it's justified. But Mark has been immune from that. And I, I would say all of the all of the arguments and criticisms that have been used about Jerry Jones through the years apply to Mark Cuban right now and how he's running this the Mavericks. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of been a mess. Uh, and so they got to get this thing worked out. And you're right. I think this is a crossroads. Uh, and thanks for giving me a column idea, David. I always <laughs> sure counting on you for that. Uh, I got to write one today. So I think that's what I'm going to write about because uh, that, that is something. It, it is a uh, they, they have gone down a path now. And they're going to have to follow this path out. There's really no way to go back from where they are. And, and they're not on a good path. This is not a good path. I really don't see how they can make this work. And they're going to be tied up in it now for a while. It's, it's yeah. going to be a little bit of a mess. They're, they're, other teams have stockpiled first-round draft picks, and so therefore gives them options and things they can do. They don't have any of that. You know, uh, they, they, they don't have options. They're constantly chasing a roster rather than building a roster. Absolutely. All right. That's going to do that. Ch- chasing a roster versus building a roster. Uh, I'll, I'll use that one. Okay. I'll use that line. Uh, <laughs> I, I've actually given you credit in columns before. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm going to give you a credit today. Usually so negative I, credit, but not, no, it's no. not positive reinforcement. Oh, no, no, stop it. All right. That's going to do it for our, the Maverick segment of our podcast. Uh, in the, this last section, we're going to talk a little bit about sports media, uh, which we don't do very much. Uh, you know, I, I think we probably should do a little bit more often. Uh, and, uh, and the reason we're going to do that now is that uh, uh, Norm Hitzkis has announced that Friday will be his last day uh, on the uh, on the tickets broadcast. Uh, he has been there now since 2000. 
48 years in the market as a talk show host, which is believed to be one of the largest or one of the longest streaks uh, in a major market in the nation, uh, maybe the longest. Uh, so, fellas, uh, what are your thoughts about Norm going out? First of all, let me ask you this. Did you think that Norm ever was going to retire? Evan? Good question. Um, but it, uh, as I said last week, it, it, it's hard for me to even fathom how a guy could have the passion that he's had uh, for talking sports to the level that he's had it for 48 years. I do know, look, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know Norm's personal story all, all that well. But it's been difficult to watch him kind of get around. God bless him. The guy still does. Um, he traveled to New Zealand. He travels around the world. But it, it's been difficult to watch him get around. And I wondered at what point in time would he say, I do have some other things that I just want to do um, while I'm still able to see the world. This is a guy who's a world explorer, right? He is a he is an adventurer. And if, if this will give him the opportunity to do more of that, that's great. I just applaud the fact that somebody, whether you agreed with Norm or whether you thought they were, they were dad jokes. And as a guy who deals in dad jokes a lot, I'm, I've become very supportive of Norm's dad jokes. Um, I, I, I just feel like he needs to be applauded for, for what he's done and for as long as he's done it. And I just hope that this decision to, to retire is on his own terms, because I think if there's anything that, that, that he deserves, it's that. Well, let me, before, David, before I ask you, I'm going to just say, put that to rest right away. He signed a new contract in February. There was no pressure on him to, to retire, uh, to resign. They, they, they love Norm. They're, they're ready to keep him. This was all his decision. Uh, he, he'd been coming to it for a little bit of a while of, of a time here. Uh, to your point about his health, he, yes, he has had a lot of health issues. I think that those things kind of have piled up on him a little bit. He has to use a walker to get around, uh, and I think that's part of it. A big part of it, too, driving to and from Little Elm uh, down to the ticket every day, uh, that's a hassle. Uh, and so and I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But, but David, go ahead. What, what are your thoughts about Norm? Uh, are you surprised to see him get out? Hey, David, before, and before you answer, sure. I want you to uh, uh, deal on this too, but we've talked to a bunch of talk show hosts in Dallas over the years, right? And the other thing about Norm that I, I, I wanted to get back to is the passion. When I talk about the passion, no sports talk host has come to us with a list of questions as detailed and as well-researched on whatever the sport as Norm is. And I know, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way when it comes to Cowboys, but I felt that way every time I talked to him on the Rangers. Yeah. And again, just uh, the, the passion and commitment, which you can't fake, right? <laughs> Especially when you're 78 and you've had the health issues and you continually come back and do this. There was no, you didn't get a sense. You can tell other people when they get a little tired or disinterested or, um, you know, radio of all the mediums is the most difficult to hide how you're feeling, I would argue, because it it's continuous. Uh, you know, uh, over the course of two hours, if you've checked out or you're disinterested or, <clears throat> you know, there's something else going on that day that distracts you, 
it's going to come across over that two hours, which is what his time segment was. And, and, and it just didn't. And the, the story uh, that this like almost psycho level of commitment and passion that he has, I, I still remember um, <clears throat> back when um, when I was a, a, a young newlywed couple, which certainly throws it back some time there. And, and Norm did uh, a Saturday show on KERA here locally. Um, and we would, uh, on Saturday mornings, we would set the alarm to like, you know, all things considered and what, you know, you kind of wake up to that talking in the background. So we'd set the alarm. We were laying around that day. It came on Norm. I think he was on at 10 o'clock on a Saturday. And Norm was doing the, he wanted to keep his consecutive streak and he also felt it was important that he needed to be there every week for his audience. So Norm was broadcasting from a cruise ship on his honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. And I that don't know that like you it. need another story other than that to show just uh, how passionate and over-the-top commitment the guy has uh, to his craft. Kevin's research has also determined he was doing the limbo contest at that particular moment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, what's really amazing about uh, about Norm, once you get into it, and I went out and talked to him uh, Saturday. It's three hours with him, I heard. Four hours. Oh, four excuse hours. me, I'm sorry. Four hours with Norm. And, uh, you know, I think I asked 12 questions. You yeah, know, I was going to uh, say, you don't have to. <laughs> that's a, his, his, his wife, Barry Dans, uh, <laughs> told me, that at one point she was sitting in the next room. She said, yeah, I, w- I was going to come out and just say, Norm, just answer the question. And, <laughs> and I said, yes, Norm means an editor, uh, as do most of us. Uh, I think this, and I'm going to drop one story that he told me uh, was very telling, and it's just remarkable, is that, you know, Norm grew up in Dunkirk, New York, which is about a half hour outside of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. He was an only child. Uh, his mother worked in a laundry six days a week. Uh, his dad was a bartender. Uh, they basically never got outside of the Buffalo area. And so Norm called his mom one day to tell her that, Mom, I've, I've taken a job uh, as a sports producer at KABC TV Channel 7 in Los Angeles. And she said, we get Channel 7. And he said, Mom, uh, that's, uh, that's Channel 7 in Buffalo. Uh, there, there are Channel 7s all over the country. And then there was a little bit of a pause. And then she said, with all these numbers, why do they do that? <laughs> so I think that kind of tells you a little bit about how far Norm has come, why Norm has done the things he's done, uh, why he's traveled so far, why he's so driven uh, to be the the the, the uh, broadcaster that he is and, and soon will be was he is planning still to do a podcast five days a week starting in September he'll do it from his house with Mary uh, he said it might be ten minutes long it might be two minutes long uh, they'll have guests and he'll talk about things other than sports uh, maybe even as he said to me uh, why Americans like to shoot each other um, so uh, I do think that Norm will be good with this, uh, maybe. He, he's still going to do the NFL draft. He's still going to be conflicted. 
He'll be conflicted. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. He'll be conflicted. And, and I won't talk about everything I wrote about, but uh, we, we talked about that some too. Uh, but I want to expand this a little bit and talk about the sports media landscape in Dallas uh, and, and what it's meant. You know, one of the things, and, and when I talked to Randy Galloway for this story, he said that when uh, Norm Hitchcock told him that he was going to do a morning sports talk show on KLIF in 1986, uh, that Randy said, there's no way you can do that. I mean, everybody does sports talk in, in, in the evenings and drive time. Uh, no one talks in the morning. Uh, Randy said that Ron Chapman, the godfather of radio in Dallas, uh, told him, no, nah, you can't sell it. You can't sell sports talk in the morning. Uh, it just won't work. And uh, But Dan Bennett, and uh, who was the general manager of KLIF, and is now the general manager of every radio station in Texas, it seems like, uh, he believed that that could happen. So did Norm, and Norm made it happen. And, and you know, when I talked to some of the guys from the ticket about that as well, uh, they kind of had the, the, the same feeling. I got to tell you, I, I always felt like that in this market, especially when the ticket debuted in 1994, uh, the, the idea of an all sports talk station, I, I thought it was a great idea, but I also thought it was something that could work. Absolutely. Why not? I mean, if you look at what we do every day for the, for, for the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day, the most comprehensive sports section in the country, and, it's, and it still is to this day, uh, and, this, and, and people in this market just eat that up. Uh, why wouldn't that be the same on radio? I just never understood why you, you couldn't do that. And, and although I did once drive around, actually I had a driver, a friend of mine drove me around. I drove around for, we drove around for 24 hours listening to sports talk radio, and then I wrote about it. And I, and I was insane after that was over or at least a little more insane after it was over. Um, but uh, I just always felt like that that could happen. And I think this market has been blessed with some really good uh, uh, people who did a good job at it. You know, if you go back to, to the early days of the ticket, you know, uh, and, and the group they put together and guys who were on it for a while, Chuck Cooperstein, uh, one of the, in my mind, uh, another great, uh, then the other people that and all the guys at the ticket, especially in the morning, my favorite group, the Musers, uh, uh, you know, Gordon, um, Gordon Keith and Craig Miller and George Dunham. They do a, a great job in the morning. It's a very talented group. And, of course, all throughout the day. But in the other, other others as well, Galloway did a great job at WBAP. I always felt like that, that the job he did there complemented so well the job he did as a columnist for the paper. I think it kind of humanized him a little bit for people to read that stuff, that when he was calling – Roy Tarpley, a seven-foot rat, uh, that Randy was not really a mean guy. Maybe maybe a little mean, but not, <laughs> as, not as mean as he came off in the column sometimes. Yeah, I well, I've, every area has a, a personality, right? I mean, if you're, if, if you're in D.C., politics is the coin of the realm. You know, you're going to be talking about politics all day. If you're uh, Los Angeles, West Coast, so much of it is the, the celebrity culture. Um, sports figures are celebrities in Dallas, I think, by and large. I mean, I think that is, um, I, I think Chicago's comparable. You know, I think there are certain cities where the status of athletes are elevated to celebrity levels. And, and I think Dallas is one of those areas. So, I mean, certainly looking back now that you have, you know, 
three stations that primarily talk sports all day, two for sure, and, and arguably a third, um, this market was ripe for it. And, and why would you think it wouldn't make sense? Well, you just didn't think it made sense before because it hadn't happened. But that didn't mean it, that, uh, that the climate wasn't ripe for it to happen. And, uh, you know, this is, again, sports is just so strongly woven into the fabric of, uh, of what this area is, um, it, it seems now you kind of go, well, why did anyone ever doubt this? Yeah, no question about that. Do you know what the first bit was on the ticket? The first bit or the first voice? First voice. Well, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Skip Bayless was the first. Well, Skip was first, and the first bit, Skip did a rant. Uh, on the on the debut of the ticket, skipped it or opened with a rant, and then they opened the they went to the phone lines, and the first call was Norm from Dallas, <laughs> uh, and it was George Dunham doing his doing Norm, uh, yep. Norm Hitzkiss, which I thought was pretty funny. As 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 George told me later, we've been kicking this guy in the crotch from the very beginning. <laughs> and, which he's and again, that, that's a tribute, you know. And, and it took a while, and Norm will tell you that too. And and uh, um, but they, you know, he came to see how seriously they took their jobs as well, even though they went about it much differently than what he did. And you know, I they certainly helped loosen him up. You couldn't you couldn't be there twenty three years like he was without being loosened up uh, from from what he had. Um, but you know, he, he showed them something too, about staying on point and always having to come back to sports. It is a sports station. You can, you can go off roading here, uh, you know, on, on guy talk, on, on movies, on music and, and that's great. But the touchstone is sports. We're a sports station and that is still ingrained in, in the tickets programming about how many consecutive segments you can go that don't re- refer to sports. Uh, it, they, they have a they have a formula in place, and I think it's it's all about finding that proper balance, right? And they were they were playing with the rules of what what were the rules of, of of sports talk radio at the time, and seeing seeing how they could alter it and where it would breathe. But you always do have to come back to sports. So they were. There's no question that that Norm was good for the ticket, and and the ticket's approach was good for Norm as far as lengthening his career as well. Yeah, there's no question about that. You're right. He he did talk about that. There was some trepidation there, uh, and and there was some awkwardness. Sure, it's a dramatic departure for him. As the musers told me, there was some awkwardness there for about a year, uh, yeah. and then they they finally got over that, and now and now they love Norm. Uh, and, and frankly, it's hard not to. You know, part of Norm's shtick is to kill you with kindness, uh, yes. and and he has he has perfected that uh, throughout the years. So uh, we'll miss him as a, an everyday uh, facet of our lives, I guess, unless you're listening to the podcast. Uh, and, and then that's just for a couple of minutes a day, maybe. And, and we'll, it'll be, I'll be interested to see how he does with all that. Um, but that's, uh, that's interesting. Do people have time to listen to Norm's podcast when they're spending all week with us? Really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is your favorite podcast. There's no question about it. Everybody's is. I think we drowned the other. I, I don't want to get personal here. I think we drowned the other podcast, by the way. Uh, the, the Dallas Morning News, the Sports Day Insider is the king of podcasts. Bring on anybody else. We'll shut them down and run them out the door. 
stupid kids. I tell you. And I think Christian, you can help us on this. Did, didn't you actually tell me that most people listen to this comp, this podcast six or seven times? Like just listening to it once isn't enough. <laughs> just wasn't enough. I like that. Yeah. yeah, that's probably right. I know in our house we're doing that. We're just hitting the repeat button. <laughs> we're just hitting the repeat button over and over, trying to drive up those numbers. Yeah. Now, how's my right. wife and daughter like? You do a podcast? Really? <laughs> How long have you been doing that? Yeah, exactly. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank everybody for listening in. We'll be back next week, and then we'll be gone for a couple of weeks. But we're going to be back here, or at least a couple of us are, uh, and we'll be uh, talking about more things. We'll be able to talk about the uh, the Mavericks and what they did, whether they actually used that 10th pick or not, uh, or if they traded it to somebody else. All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thank you, and we'll see you next time.